When was the, uh, when was the last time you, you turned on your television, you went to the guide or cycled through the 481 channels that are available to you for your watching pleasure, and then you snapped it off and said, there's just nothing to watch on television. Anybody? Every day. It's proof that we are living in the last days when we have more channels and more individualized programming than ever and simultaneously greater dissatisfaction with what is available. Now, there is this severe decline in the popularity of traditional television, and there are reasons for that. Number one, our consumption of digital media has changed, first of all. New media, as it's called, is eroding television's long-held control. Netflix... Amazon Video, Redbox, Hulu. Here you can pick out what you want immediately to watch, though I have found that searching through some of these outlets is just as maddening as channel surfing. Number two, we hate commercials. Can I get an amen? And there are more than ever. Traditional television losing its economic ground has loaded up on ads. 750 commercials per day, per TV channel. And they're even speeding up some shows, just the slightest, in order to fit in more commercials during the half hour or hour that you have. And then, of course, there's the bombardment of pop-up and banner ads that are even more disgusting to me than television commercials. Your radio, whether it's local or satellite now, is constantly hawking some product or person. Your social media feed is filled with promoted material. You're exposed to about 4,000 images a day in this country. And add that insult to injury and to senses, this round-the-clock news coverage, partisan politics, ceaseless, solicitous emails, obnoxious, flashing, rotating billboards like the one on Highway 331 North that you could land an airliner by late at night? And is it any wonder that we have this sensory overload, right? in the society in which we live. But there's a third reason why we hate television and scream out there's nothing to watch. TV is filled with reruns. We are seeing the same shows over and over again. How many episodes do we actually need of the Big Bang Theory, Law and Order, and Seinfeld anyway? I like those shows, but for Pete's sake, is there no new content that we can Put out there. I'm not running for political office. I'm not out to change the world, but on this we can agree upon. Christians, atheists, Republicans, Democrats, independents, black, brown, white men, women, please stop so many commercials on television and quit airing so many reruns. If we started right there, a large section of this country could come back together in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And with that said today, I want you to know that the sermon today is a rerun. It happens. Checking my notes, I've spoken from these verses from Philippians 4 that we're going to talk about today directly six times in the last 11 years. And it is, by the way, last week was our 11th anniversary of the Simple Faith Church, hard to believe. And that's as much or more than any other single text. The end of Matthew 11 gets a lot of my attention. It comes close. I reference the Sermon on the Mount as a thematic text much more often, but when it comes to a single episode... (laughs) This is it. 
this is the one that's most repeated. Well, Ronnie, you do know that there are 66 books in the Bible, don't you? You do know there's a little bit more material you could be working with. Why do you keep coming back to these? Well, I think you'll see why. And I hope that this rerun will be less like a hapless episode of Gilligan's Island and more like maybe the series finale of MASH, which for you trivia buffs is still the most watched syndicated television show in the history of the medium. Did anybody ever see that live, by the way? My parents made me come into the living room and watch the last episode of MASH, and I had no idea what was going on because I'd never seen an episode of MASH up to that point. This is Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9, focusing really on 6 through 8 today as we continue this exploration of always on my mind, learning to think like Jesus, and we read these words. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. That's a sermon that could be repeated to infinity and beyond. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. That's another good sermon. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. Or as the old translations go, that surpasses all understanding. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. And by the way, there's one more sermon in this series. Whenever Paul says one final thing, he's not done, like most good preachers. One final thing, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right, pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. The Word of God for the people of God. Speaking of reruns, last week I told you I reconnected with Joe Height when I went to officiate his mom's funeral in Arkansas. And when I first saw him, after not seeing him in almost 10 years when he left us here, I grabbed him up in a bear hug there in the funeral home and he grabbed me up in a, in a bear hug as well and we exchanged the usually usual family information and he talked about the journey he was on and then he said, I need to show you something. It's in the truck. I'll be right back. And he goes, leaves me there and goes to his truck. And he comes back and uh, runs off and gets these scribbles. Now, I don't know if you can see that, but it's a napkin in a plastic bag. And it's got these scribbles on it. Now, let me say first that good things can happen when you scribble on a napkin. Uh. The whole concept of a simple faith, my, 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 the outline of my doctoral dissertation, all began on the back of a napkin. And it must be my habit. Joe shows this to me, and he says, I was asking you once about changing my ways. I had to do better, and we were at lunch, 
and you wrote this down telling me that I was working at things backwards, that I couldn't start with my behavior, and that's the word on one end of that napkin, and work my way backwards. I had to start on the inside first and change who I was on the inside in order for my behavior to change. And I stood there like this. Joe, what is wrong with you? Who keeps a napkin from a lunch for 10 years in a plastic bag? And he said, well, it works. I said, give me that napkin. I still stand by what I said there. This is a repeat episode for you today, and apparently I've been repeating it for a long time. I don't even remember the lunch. I don't even remember the conversation, but Joe's carrying around the notes in his pocket like it's the Holy Grail. And I stand by it today because of this. Where our religion, any religion for that matter, is most misguided is this scheme to change a person by first changing his or her behavior. Behavior modification first. That, as Joe testified, is to work backwards. We want people to act right. We want people to do right. We want people to change for the better. We want people to worry less, to be less anxious, to be more confident in faith. And all of those things are good, but you can't begin at someone's behavior and work in reverse. You can't begin with someone's feelings, how they feel about it. You can't begin with behavior or feelings if you want a dynamic spiritual transformation. You have to begin with the heart and with the mind. You have to begin with the way that you think in order for your behaviors to change. As a man thinks in his heart, the proverb says, so is that person. How you think is what you are. The way you think about things affects the way that you feel about things. And the way you feel about things affects how you behave and act the way that you do. You begin at the heart, the crux, the mind. Your thinking has to change first if anything else is going to change. You follow that? How do we change our minds? And let me say our minds. I've said this throughout this series. You're not going to change anybody else's mind. Repeating, you are not going to change anybody else's mind. Well, I'll just get them in a room and talk to them. Good luck. But you can change your mind. If you want to change your behavior, if you want to change the way you feel, start at the heart. Change your heart, change your mind. How do we change our minds? Paul says, fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, what's right, What's pure, lovely, and admirable, think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. It's no wonder I'm repeating these verses over and over. I could stay right here for the rest of my life and never exhaust this. Because the truth of the matter is, most of us really don't know about ourselves or about God 
what is actually true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and admirable. We really don't know what God thinks about us. God loves you. And God would bankrupt the universe to show that love to you. That's true. And that is right. And that is lovely. And that is just. And that is praiseworthy. Most of us don't think about that, though, do we? We think about where we've gone wrong. We think about every mistake that we've ever made. We think about what other people are doing wrong. And every mistake that they have made. Start right here and let it transform you from the inside out. The word that he uses, interesting enough, when he says, think on these things, fix your thoughts on these things, literally means to meditate. Meditate? Well, I I thought we were Christians. I thought only those Buddhist and Hindu types meditate. No, meditation has been a long-standing Christian Practice. We in North American, we as North American Christians simply are no good at it. Because we would rather channel surf 481 channels than just sit quietly. Oh Lord, yes, it's true. We can't shut up long enough to meditate. Or shut off long enough to really think about things, to be still to be quiet, to direct our minds and our thoughts in a healthy, helpful, loving way. And I'm a hypocrite here. I hate commercials, but here is one real quick. My friend Pat Carlisle and I are going to be leading a a sort of bi-weekly retreat coming up in a few weeks about these very things and give some attention, some practical steps on how to quiet our minds, to focus on Christ, to be still. And you'll hear more about that later, and I'll save it for later, but I will say this now. Most people, when they meditate, they think that means I'm just going to numb my mind and zone out and go into neutral and stare at my navel. No, it's focused, intentional work. The word that Paul uses is a math term, to calculate. Remember being in school? You go to math, it's easy, two plus two, but then one day you move on to algebra, and it's not as easy. Asked my son who started 10th grade this year. He's trying to move his schedule around to avoid math. Son, there's no running from it. Sorry. Some things you don't get over, you get through. You know what I'm saying? It takes serious mental calculation. When Paul's talking about meditating and fixing our thoughts on these things that are true and right, he is saying, you get a hold of that with your mind. Do some figuring on it. Work it out in your head. Calculate. Think. Focus on those things. Read the text. Fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable. Think about the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. This is what you think about, what you meditate upon You have this fixated calculation that you make. You roll these over and over in your thoughts. And these eventually become evident in your actions. Because that's how it works. I'll tell you, Jesus said, it's not what goes into a person that defiles them. Jesus said it's what comes out of their mouth. And what comes out of their mouth is what? What is in their heart. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth 
speaks. And you may right now can say, well, why do people act that way? <laughs> Have you ever said, said that? Why do people say the things they say? Well, if it's in their heart, they can't stop themselves. All we can do and all we can say is what we have been programmed to do and say from our hearts. Whatever is on the inside of us is just like a sponge. You squeeze somebody hard enough and it is going to come out. Let me remind you of what you know. God, I hope you know this. Watch CNN all day long. Watch Fox News all day long. Watch MSNBC all freaking day long. Focus only on your Facebook and social media timeline, which has been designed by exacting algorithm to present you with a very narrow, insulated point of view. Read about everything that is repugnant, offensive, and vile in this world. Fill your mind and your eyes with all that is fearful, angry, negative, conspiratorial, and hateful. And you will become a fearful, suspicious, anxious, angry, worried, negative individual. I guarantee you that. It is guaranteed. And an hour on Sunday cannot insulate you against 40 hours of that all week long. Can I get an amen, please? It doesn't work that way. If you take in hate and fear, that's all you have to give back to this world. That's all you got. Why is our world in the shape it's in? Well, have you paid attention to it? When you take that in, you have no other recourse but to dish it out, and we wonder why people are so angry. You feed on it, it gives you your subsistence, and eventually it is what dishes out to other people. These verses are worth repeating, are they not? They have to be. I'm not selling copies of the power of positive thinking here. Well, apologies to Norman Vincent Peale. But he's right on that count. Positive thinking is powerful. The right thinking is powerful. But there's more than that, more than mind over matter. It's not ignorant bliss about what the world is really like. It's not. It's surrendering to the fact that you can only do so much about what is wrong in this world. And you can't do anything at all about what is wrong with this world if you're part of the problem. If we're going to be engaged in this world in a positive way, it will be because as Christians and believers, we bring this love-infused, spirit-led, full of joy and grace mojo to the table. That we don't fight fire with fire. To quote the great Dr. King, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And if we get right down to a programming term, it's one we've heard since the 80s. Garbage in, garbage out. Are you still with me? It's a good place to confess to Joe and to all of you that that napkin scribble is not my creation. It's been with me for years. It's the clearest articulation of that I ever heard was from a man I met 20 years ago. His name is Eugene Murray. And 
I only knew Eugene casually. His, his son was a friend of mine, Matt Murray. Matt pitched for the Atlanta Braves in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And uh, yeah, I'll give you a guess where you, you, Francis Eugene Murray is, is he's about as Irish Catholic as you can get. And he, he was from Boston. And uh, Matt had the great pleasure of being drafted by the Atlanta Braves, pitching for the Atlanta Braves in the major leagues, and then getting traded and pitching for his hometown Boston Red Sox in his short, yes, in his short uh, major league career before he hurt his shoulder. But I met his dad. He brought his dad, dad south one time, and he said, I need to tell you about my dad. He's, he's a case. Uh, and he would tell me stories about Eugene's drunkenness, the legendary Irish Catholic Boston drunkenness. And some of the stories were really funny, and some of them were tragic, but he was just a mess. And Matt, the favorite story Matt ever told is one day they're in traffic, and Eugene, Francis Eugene, is, is inebriated in Boston traffic, and somebody cuts him off, and he gets so angry and so out of control that he, he has this fit of road rage and chases the guy down, gets out, drags the guy out of his car, and they're just brawling in the parking lot. Fists are flying, and Matt said, I looked over at the car, and that guy that my dad's fighting, his son is in the front seat just like me, and we went to school together. And I went, <laughs> and he said, and he went, <laughs> and he said, we just went back to watching our dad's brawl in the parking lot till they got it worked out. <laughs> well, here's the great thing. Gene finally broke and got sober. And he just didn't get sober. He went back to school. And he just didn't go back to school. He got his addiction recovery counseling credentials. And for the last 30 years, Gene has been helping addicts get well. It's, it's, a, it's a miracle of grace. And uh, he's still in Boston in his 70s now, still practicing. I Googled him just this week to make sure. And he would say to me, oh, wild-eyed, if you knew him, he's seven feet tall, skinny as a rail, haired this big all over the place like a bird's nest. And he would say to me, now, Ronnie, and I can't do the Boston accent, I'm sorry, but he can. Go pocket your car in the yard, that kind of a thing. And he would say, nobody's going to change because they feel like it. I'd say, yeah, yeah. Nobody is going to stop drinking because they feel like it. Have you ever told a drunk, hey, why don't you just stop drinking? It don't work. People change when they change their mind. And he'd pull out this paper, and he had it, carried a briefcase with him everywhere. He'd pull out this paper, and it was just this garbage in, garbage out, the same thing that I wrote down for Joe 10 years ago or whenever it was. And he, held, he handed these things out like they were Scripture to people, anybody that would listen to him. And he would say, you have to change what's going into the program if you want the outcome of the program to be any different. And he's right. Because the Scriptures are right in that count. You wanna, do you want to change? Do you want to do better? Do you want to feel better? Then change the way you think. And it starts right here. You've got to do the work with these very things Paul's talking about here. You've got to feed your soul and feed your mind and feed your heart on good stuff if anything about your behavior is going to change. 
And the most beautiful thing about all of this is that this healthy way of thinking is not for the sake of making you a cute little moral socialite. It's for the sake of peace. The peace of God which surpasses all human understanding will be yours. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Keep putting these into practice and the peace of God will be with you. We could stand a whole lot more peaceful people in this world. And it starts with each of us. You want to be a peaceful person? Put this into practice, what you've heard today. The universe is conspiring to give you more serenity than you can stand. If you'll take it. If you want it. If you'll receive it. And you'll simply practice these things. And I guarantee you, and not much is guaranteed in this world, but I will guarantee you this. Practice these things and you will be at peace. Keep putting these into practice. Stay at it over and over again. Let the reruns just keep playing. And you'll be transformed from the inside out. Quote the great Orner Ross, because if you cannot change your mind, you cannot change anything. But if you can change your mind, anything can become possible.